0: Hey, what is up? Welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit subscribe if you've not already done so. We have an amazing back catalog of episodes that I am sure you will enjoy. You can also reach out to me personally to find a specific recommendation just for you and open a conversation. That's what we're all about here at Going Deep with Aaron Watson. And that is why I am so excited to be sharing today's episode, an interview with Kim Scott. Now, I read Kim's book radical candor, heard a number of her interviews, and just had to get her on the podcast. She has a distinguished background working both at Google with Sheryl Sandberg, Sergey Brin, and Eric Schmidt, and also teaching leadership at Apple. So she has been in the heart of some of the biggest and most exciting Silicon Valley companies of this this century and has some really important communication and leadership lessons to distill to us. Both leadership and communication skills are very difficult to assess for the average person. It's easy to know who's better at math, who runs faster, who has a larger vocabulary by running different tests and seeing who comes out with better results. Leadership and communication is much more of an art than a science, and it is books like Radical Candor and thinkers like Kim Scott who help move you forward in the pursuit of developing those skills i know i grew so much from reading the book and talking with her i think you will as well so please enjoy my conversation with kim scott you're listening to going deep with aaron watson right. So Kim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. It's great to be chatting with you.
0: I'm glad we were able to finally connect. And I think we need to start off uh, by just congratulating you. The book Radical Candor is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. I've read it. I loved it. But congratulations on uh, it landing on so many people's shelves.
1: Thank you so much. It was a a long process writing it and there were four other unpublished books b- before it. So, it's great to see this one working.
0: I'm I'm so curious about that because I've heard some other authors describe that when they say it went unpublished was it something where you shopped it to publishers and they just declined it or was it just personally you um disqualified it? Tell me about that.
1: Oh no, I shopped. I shopped and I have a a giant stack of rejections. I think like every author <laughs> <laughs> you just writing is usually kind of a labor of love, and you do it because you want to do it and uh but but, of course you want to do you have something to say, so it's a lot more fun to have people reading your book and I got a couple of emails today saying that the book had helped people change their company culture and have more fun working together, so that's really the reason you write.
0: Yeah. And, and it is a, a really powerful, the two-by-two two matrix that you lay out in the book is so important for leaders to understand. And my my personal experience is more on the sports end of things, of, of being a captain of a sports team. But it really, I, I think, applies um, to that setting in addition to the business world. So just we'll, we'll take things back to a 101 level for people. Uh, basically, in the book, you lay out a two-by-two two matrix of the areas that, that leaders can fall into in their communication with their teams. And And it's based off of how much they challenge directly, how much they care personally for their team and the different boxes that falls into and and where they should be shooting for is radical candor. Can you talk a little bit about just where the genesis of this idea came from and, and how you went about developing it?
1: Sure. I'd love to. So the the basic idea of radical candor is that in order to be a good leader, colleague, employee, whatever, uh, this applies kind of, it's not hierarchical. It applies to all your relationships at work and actually to relationships more broadly. You need to be able to care personally about people at the same time that you're able to to be willing to challenge them directly. And so caring personally is kind of the give-a-damn aspect and challenging directly is kind of the willing willingness to piss people off aspect of leadership. Colin Powell said that leadership often means being willing to piss people off. And I think that so often we feel like if you really wanted to distill it down to its simplest, most abstract form, it's about love and truth at the same time. And I think all too often we feel like you have to choose. We feel like there's a false dichotomy between being willing to tell people when they're screwing up or or to tell them when their work is great uh, and, and really caring about them and And the truth is that you need to be able to do both at the same time, and in fact, it's not caring if you're not challenging others as a leader, if you're not telling them when they're making a mistake, that's not a caring thing to do. And so so that's radical candor when you can care and challenge at the same time. Now, when you challenge, but you don't show that you care, I call that obnoxious aggression. And that's often called sort of the asshole quadrant. But it's it's really important to use this framework not to judge others, which is why I don't refer to just Name calling, like this is the jerk quadrant, because we all make these mistakes all the time in communicating with others. Now, that is actually a mistake we love to talk about. We love to talk about it when somebody's been a jerk, but by far the most common mistake that people make is when they do show they care personally, but because they're so worried about hurting the other person's feelings or, or pissing the other person off, they fail to challenge directly. And that is what I call ruinous empathy. And it's it's sort of being so worried about somebody's feelings in the short term that you fail to tell them something that's really going to benefit them in the long term. And, and that's the biggest mistake that I warn about in the book. And then, of course, sometimes we fail on both dimensions at once. And we all do. And when you when you both fail to show that you care and you fail to challenge directly. I call that manipulative insincerity. And that's sort of backstabbing behavior, passive-aggressive behavior. And and we see that uh, all, all too often as well. Uh, and the genesis, it's interesting, the genesis of this framework probably came when I was walking my puppy in New York City. And and I had just become uh, I had just started a software company, so it was my first experience as CEO. And I was really struggling with managing people and and giving feedback. I, I didn't want to be a jerk. I didn't want to be seen as a jerk. Uh, and I got this email one day from a bunch of people, and it was an, a link to an article that said that most people would rather have a boss who's who's a jerk, who's a total jerk, but really effective, than one who's really nice but ineffective. And I thought, are people sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm ineffective? And And surely these are not my two choices. So I take my dog out for a walk to sort of think about this and what this means. And I loved this dog, golden retriever puppy, totally cute. And because I adored this dog so much, I had never said a crossword to her, and she was totally out of control. And she jumped in front of an oncoming cab. I pulled her out of the way just before she got crushed. And a man on the street, a perfect stranger, said to me, I can see you really love that dog. That was all he had to do to show he cared personally. He didn't have to know my name or my kids' names or my birthday or have taken me out to lunch. I can see you really care about that dog. And then he says to me, but you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach it to sit. And then he points at the ground and he kind of gesticulates harshly and says, sit and the dog sat i had no idea the dog even knew what that meant and i kind of looked up at him in amazement and he said to me it's not mean it's clear and then walked off <laughs> leaving me with words to live by and so ever since then i was really thinking about that it's not mean it's clear as kind of a management uh, a management meditation really but I wanted to—I wanted to boil it down. I wanted to distill it in a way that people could really find more actionable, and that's what prompted me to spend. It's funny. I spent three months debating what's the right word for care personally for the vertical uh, axis. What's the right word for challenge directly for the horizontal? What are the right words for each of the boxes? And it felt almost self-indulgent to spend so much time on on, uh, you know, six phrases. But but it, it worked in the end. Uh, I, I'm glad it you found it helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we're going to direct people to the show notes just so they can see the actual two by two matrix, because that definitely clarifies further. I'm a visual learner, so I know that that's going to be helpful for people. But you, on two opposite corners, you have what you aspire to, the radical candor, and then the opposite, the manipulative insincerity. And these are both situations where, in my opinion, because you have both the lack of personal care, the lack of directly challenging people, it accelerates almost in an exponential way the toxicity of some of those relationships. Yes. And then conversely, when you have a culture where people do care personally and challenge directly, it exponentially improves the quality and the efficiency and the effectiveness of the team. And that's something that just once you see it in action, I think you start to really appreciate how powerful that can be. But when you haven't gotten there yet, you, you said during that amazing answer how you think often we think that it's one or the other. It's either truth or it's love. But really, when you lean into and, and, and boil down this idea, you are... Knowing that someone loves you and cares about you because they're willing to give you the real feedback and that person feels safe to give you the real feedback because you know that that person cares and vice versa. And that that to me is really the magic of if you can harness that as a team, you can go really far. I've seen it personally, but I'd I'd love if there's just another instance of, of where you've seen that in action when people the light bulb kind of goes on for people and they're like, oh, this is really working.
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you a very simple story about a time when my boss criticized me, and it had a big impact on the rest of my career. I had just joined Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about uh, about AdSense, the, the business that I was leading. And I walked into the room and it's as though this, Eric Schmidt, the CEO's brain, has been connected to his computer. He's so deep in his email. And Sergey, one of the one of the co-founders, is on an elliptical trainer in the corner. And like any normal person, I felt kind of nervous. Like, how am I going to get these people's attention? And I was lucky because the business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric's head jerks up out of his computer. Sergey stops on the elliptical trainer. And they said, what do you need? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? How can we keep this going? And so I'm feeling like the meeting went reasonably well. In fact, to be honest, I'm feeling like a genius And as I'm leaving, I passed my boss, who was Sheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting a high five or a pat on the back or some sort of congratulations. Instead, she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, boy, now I've screwed something up. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl started by telling me the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in a feedback sandwich kind of way, but in a genuine way, some stuff I didn't know. But, of course, all I really wanted to hear about was what I had screwed up. And eventually she says to me, You said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I sort of made this brush-off gesture with my hand. And I said, Yeah, I know. It's a verbal tick. No big deal, really. And then Cheryl said to me, I know this really good speech coach, and Google would pay for it. Do you want an introduction? And again, I made this brush-off gesture. I said, no, didn't you hear about all those new customers? I'm busy. I don't have time for a speech coach. And then Cheryl stopped, and she looked right at me, and she said, when you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she has my full attention. And some people would say that it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't said it just that way, and she wouldn't have said it just that way to other people on her team who are perhaps better listeners than I was. But she knew by observing this brush off gesture I was making with my hand, that if she didn't say it just that way, then then I was going to keep blowing her off. And because she said it just that way, I did go to see the speech coach, and I learned that Cheryl was not exaggerating. I really did say um every third word, and I had no idea that I had been doing that. I'd been giving presentations my whole career. It was as though I'd been walking through my my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and nobody had ever shown me the courtesy of telling me it was there. I could get it off if I knew it was there and so this really got me to thinking, why did nobody else tell me, and what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me and And that was really part of what got me thinking about this caring this ability to care personally at the same time that you challenged directly and also why so many of us fail on one dimension or another at, at at work and in other relationships as well.
0: I think if people, you know, with their biases might have a little more trouble diagnosing themselves as the asshole. But I, I'm certain that there's people who can diagnose themselves as the ruinous empathy. They always struggle to give the hard feedback because they do care so much about what other people think they want to be liked they want to be they want others to know that they care about them um, and, and they kind of get stuck not delivering that feedback what you know when you you talk to other executives or, or in your own experiences have you found is an effective catalyst to move into a more candid conversation with others
1: So I think several things. First of all, it's really important not to use this framework to judge yourself or to diagnose yourself. Nobody is always in any one of these quadrants. We all find ourselves in each of the quadrants all the time. Even though I wrote the book on radical candor, I sometimes still behave like a jerk. Uh, I sometimes am ruinously empathetic, and I'm sometimes still manipulatively insincere. So I think the most important thing you can do is not to use the framework to hang a label on yourself or on somebody else. I I beg people when they see the framework, don't start writing names in boxes because that's not going to help you improve your communication. So use the framework to move individual conversations in the right direction so here are some really specific things you can do i think one of the things you can do is to just print the framework out and put it around in a in a in a, in a location where you're tending to have feedback conversations and just ask the other person gauge your feedback radical candor gets measured not at your mouth but at the other person's ear and so ask people, how is this landing for you? How does this feel to you? Because the one of the most common mistakes that people make is they, because they're so afraid of being mean, they're just not at all clear in what they're saying. And so when you tell somebody, how is this feeling? And, and you're afraid that the person is going to think you're mean. And the other person says, actually, I think you're pulling your punches. I think you're being ruinously empathetic that can really help you find the courage to say as clearly as possible what you mean. I think another thing that you can do to help uh, yourself is to focus first on soliciting feedback. Don't focus first on giving feedback. Uh, Make sure that you prove you can take it before you start dishing it out. And so there's a few simple things you can do to start soliciting better feedback. The first is to come up with a go-to question. You don't. If you ask somebody, do you have any feedback from me? I can already tell you what the answer is. No. I don't. Everything's fine. Because n- people hate giving feedback. One of the things I've learned in this book is just how deeply people fear giving feedback. So you've got to drag it out of them. So come up with a question that will that will more likely elicit a response other than, no, everything's fine. So one one question I like to use is, is there anything I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Now, once you've asked your question, the second step is to embrace the discomfort. It's People do not want to answer. Even if you come up with a great question, people do not want to answer it. And so the best thing you can do is simply to create enough discomfort that it will make somebody feel more uncomfortable saying nothing than saying something. And the simplest way to do that is just to shut your mouth and count to six in your head. So I only just made it to three. And I was counting probably too fast. It's like one. I started to get answers. Two, I know. And you were about <laughs> to say something, weren't you? If I had yeah. gone all the way to six, you definitely would have said something. People, this is what I learned about ums, too. The reason why I said um so much is that I'm uncomfortable with silence. People are uncomfortable with silence. And if you can remain silent for just a few seconds, they'll probably tell you something. So that's the second step is embrace the discomfort. The third step is to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. It's perfectly natural to feel defensive when you get feedback. Don't beat yourself up if you feel defensive, but don't act defensive. Just respond. Say, so just to make sure I understand what you're saying, even if you disagree with it vehemently, and then repeat what the person said to you and make sure that you got it. Make sure that you understood it. And having understood it, now you have to reward the candor. So if you agree with the feedback, it's relatively easy. You have to fix the problem and be uh, very vocal and sort of almost theatrical about the fact that you fixed the problem. And if you disagree with the feedback, I think the best thing to do is is not to be silent about your disagreement. The person who wrote Radical Candor would never suggest that, right? But rather to to find focus first on finding that five percent of whatever was said that you can agree with. That you pro- there's never a hundred percent disagreement, and and give voice to that area of agreement, and then say, I want to think about the rest of it and come back to you. And the reason to think about it is just to make sure you're not going to have a defensive reaction. But then you really must get back to the person and explain to them why you disagree, and not in a defensive way. Sometimes the best reward for candor is just a fuller explanation of your point of view. Now, at some point, of course, you have to listen, challenge, commit. You have to to, uh, to find a path forward. But taking just a few moments to explain how you really feel is uh, is really important for, for getting to the best answer, doing the best work, and also for the relationship.
0: Hey, just hopping in here, one of my favorite stories from the book that I wanted Kim to share in the interview was of one of her first instances as a manager where ruinous empathy actually caused a really big problem for her company and her business so this is a story of Kim dealing with her own ruinous empathy and I I just love how honest and open she is with her own mistakes and flaws throughout this interview and throughout the book
1: yeah, it's it's really a story probably the most painful moment in my career. I had I had hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and I really liked Bob a lot. He was smart, he was funny, he was charming. He would do stuff like we were, we were at one of these manager offsites that everybody hates because we're playing some get to know you game that's interminable, uh but nobody wants to be the jerk who says this is I don't want to do this. And and Bob very kindly said, "You know, this is fun, but I have a great idea and it'll be really fast. And everybody sort of said, yeah, if it's really fast, let's do it. And he said, let's just go around the table and tell each other what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird but fast, weirder yet, everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So anyway, I found this funny. I found this charming. There was just one problem with Bob. He was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. I could, it was so puzzling because he had this amazing resume. I couldn't understand what was going on. And then I learned actually much later that the problem was Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom every day, which maybe explained all that candy. But anyway, at the time, I didn't know any of that. And so Bob would hand in some work to me. And there was shame in his eyes. He knew that it was not nearly good enough. And yet, because I liked him and didn't want to hurt his feelings, I didn't tell him that that this was terrible. Instead, I'd say some version of, Bob, you're so awesome. You're so smart. Everybody loves working with you. This is a great start. Maybe you can make it a little better. And of course, he never did. And... And eventually, after 10 months of this, the inevitable happened. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose half my team. And I, so I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished, Bob sort of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is rolling around in my head with no very good answer, he said, why didn't anybody tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize that I have failed Bob in a bunch of different ways. i failed to solicit feedback from him. Maybe I was doing something that was driving him so crazy that he was forced to toke up in the bathroom. I don't know, and I never will because I never asked him for feedback, And then I realized I had failed to give him praise that was meaningful. Instead, I gave him praise that was basically just a head fake. I failed to give him criticism. I failed to tell him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And probably worst of all, I had failed to create an environment in which everyone would tell Bob when his work was truly good and when he was going off the rails, And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, I'm now firing him because of it. I'm firing Bob in part for mistakes that I had made. And that's the really difficult thing about leadership is that you learn your hardest lessons on the backs of other people. But it was too late to save Bob. It wouldn't have done the company any good for me to fire myself and to leave Bob there. Even Bob agreed at this once he understood things that he should go All I could do in that moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, and that I would do everything in my power to help the people who I worked with never to make that mistake again. And that's really a big part of the motivation behind spending so much time coming up with this two-by-two.
0: You uh working with Sheryl Sandberg here, and you've kind of gone down a list of the who's who of Silicon Valley icons, Eric Schmidt, Sergey Brin, Steve Jobs, um, across across your time in the Valley. And one of the other anecdotes from the book that I really enjoyed and, and called back other uh, stories of leadership for me was the, the situation of embracing the argument and, and kind of, you know, moving more into the, the world of challenging directly Allowing some of those sparks to fly and friction to happen and trusting that a really quality result is going to come out at the other end. Getting back to the sports parallels, uh, I I love Bill Russell. In his autobiography, he talked about... Um, talking with his coach, Red Arbuck, before a game, you know, these are guys who won multiple championships together. And he said, you know, just really let me have it today in practice. Our entire team was a lackadaisical in the last game, but they need to understand that you're not just picking on one or two people. They need mm-hmm. to see that you can come after the best player on the team. And that's just the culture that we have. And the expectation is you'll take it you'll get better and you'll move forward together. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences, either being a part of those confrontations or just witnessing them in a business setting?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, it is so important that people feel free and able to challenge one another. To say If something's wrong or broken and you see that it's broken and then you feel muzzled, you don't feel free to point it out, that's like that's just a terrible feeling at work, so it's really important for a leader to create an environment where it's not dangerous to point out that something's broken, where it's not dangerous to say the emperor has no clothes and uh and early on when i when I joined Google, I saw an example of this uh matt Matt Cuts was in a big argument Matt cutts uh led um the the in sort of kept the quality of Google's index high and so he was in an argument with Larry about a particular policy and he was really getting angry at Larry and Matt's a soft-spoken really friendly guy but he was he was actually yelling at Larry and I had just met Matt and really liked him and just joined Google and I I had kind of a pit in my stomach I was afraid that Matt was going to get fired And then I looked at Larry and Larry had this giant grin on his face and he was sort of inviting Matt to bring it on and making sure that he was not pulling his punches and disagreeing with him. And then Larry started to give as good as he got and they had a big argument. But it was not, you know, it it was just very productive and it was respectful. Uh, It was not it was not super polite, but it was super respectful. And I think that that, that was really a big learning for me. I saw, uh, you know, this similar at, at Apple, which had a very strong culture of debate. And what, one of the, one of the, things that I, such a simple thing, but one of the things that Steve Jobs used to do is he would just switch sides. If he was arguing for A and he felt vehemently about it, he was such a powerful personality that sometimes people would just back down. And so he would say, okay, today I'm going to argue for B and you're going to argue for A. And it was a great way to make sure that people understood each other's positions and, uh, and, uh, and we're really listening to each other and and not losing. It's so easy. To, I mean, debate is tiring, and it's tempting as a leader to think that your job is to make a decision so that the argument can end, but that's often the worst thing you could do. There are times when you just need to let the argument go until you find that determinative factor that is going to let everybody know you've made the right decision.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, the strong views weekly held is the, uh, the apt, uh, um, yes. catchphrase for that one. Yes. Um, this has been fantastic, Kim. I, I want to just, before we start wrapping up, um, really commend you uh, as an excellent communicator, you know, reading the book, seeing this two by two, uh, matrix. Prepping for the interview, I already knew it, but just the answers and the clarity with which you've communicated these ideas, I think is gonna be really, really helpful for people. And I really both strongly encourage people to at the very least check out the two, the two by two matrix, but check out the book as well. Once again, that's Radical Candor. Uh, be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. We're going to have that all linked to in the show notes. Uh, Kim, but if people want to follow along on your journey and everything that you're up to and, and whatever's coming next for you, uh, what digital coordinates can we point people towards?
1: Absolutely. So so RadicalCandor.com uh, is, is a great resource. We, we put new content uh, up there all the time. At Kimball Scott is uh, my Twitter handle. And, uh, and I always love, we, you, you can write in on the, on the website, I always love hearing from people about questions they have, management dilemmas they have, radical candor, triumph stories, <laughs> radical candor, uh, whoops the monkey stories. Always good <laughs> to hear from people.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes, com slash podcast is the place to find it. But as we do at the end of every episode, Kim, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience.
1: I would suggest that everybody who listens to this podcast, focus on soliciting radical candor from somebody you work with. Find out what is it that you could do or stop doing That would make it easier to work with you because you will learn a lot from that radical candor and it also gives you, it gives you the opportunity to show that feedback is a gift and it'll make it much easier for you to give some radical candor if you've asked for some.
0: Absolutely. And maybe even push outside, like maybe you have one or two trusted confidants that you already have that rapport with. Bring someone else into that inner circle. Find someone new that maybe doesn't feel as comfortable or, or does you haven't gotten to that level yet with. That's something to really push for.
1: Yeah. In fact, really good advice from, uh, from Alan Eustace, who is one of my favorite engineering leaders at Google, said, that the best time to ask for feedback from somebody is when they're really angry at you. So think about the person at work who's maddest at you and go ask them to give you some feedback. You're most likely (laughs) to get the truth then.
0: I absolutely love it. Hope everyone out there will take the challenge and check out the book. We just went deep with Kim Scott. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Hey everyone thank you so much for listening to today's episode please hit that subscribe button if you've not already done so and reach out to kim to learn more about radical candor check out her podcast check out her website the book all that good stuff available to you in the show notes at the links provided also get excited for some of our forthcoming episodes We have a ton of great interviews coming down the pipe and a big back catalog for those of you who are new that you can check out. But as always, thank you so much for listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.